Ready. Hello, class. This is your Professor Debbie, and welcome to True Crime University. First of all, I have a good announcement. I just reached 7,000 downloads. Can you believe that? So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, for listening to me. I really, really appreciate it. Keep listening. Tell your friends about me. Subscribe. And go on Apple Podcasts and leave me a five-star review because that helps me move up in the charts. It helps people find me more easily under search engines. So I really appreciate all of you a whole bunch. This case is actually for my friend Becky, who said that she wanted to hear a case about stalking, which is a very serious crime and sometimes, unfortunately, results in violence, as we're going to see in today's lesson. So name your celebrity crush. I know everybody has one, so don't lie. Everybody, well, if you heard my one episode, I think it was my live episode, I told you mine is Jeremy Renner. So Jeremy, if you're out there listening, give me a holler. Yeah, like he's really going to. But my point is that we see people on TV or movies or whatnot, and we uh, fantasize about them, and it's totally normal. Like I said, if you said no, I don't have a celebrity crush, you're full of shit, because everybody does. It's natural and normal to idolize and fantasize over famous people. It's just the way we are, just human, and however, it may become obsessive. It may get to the point where it's no longer a crush, or it's no longer cute, but it's now an obsession or it could turn into something dangerous. And obviously, if you haven't figured it out, today's lesson is about an upcoming star who was murdered by an obsessive fan. So we're going to talk about her life, the victim, the killer's life, and the crime, and then, of course, the psychology. Rebecca Lucille Schaefer was born on November 6th of 1967 in Eugene, Oregon. She was an only child. Her mother was named Dana. She was a writer. And her dad was named Benson. He was a child psychologist. They were Jewish. And Rebecca was very religious, very into her faith. And she actually wanted to be a rabbi at one point. Then later she changed her mind and thought maybe she wanted to be a doctor or lawyer when she grew up. Rebecca was known for her long curly hair, which you can see pictures of her. And in the 80s, that was very popular. We had what what we called big hair or 80s hair. And Rebecca had really big hair. When she was about 14, her hairdresser said that she should be a model and referred her to an agency called Troutman Profiles. So this modeling agency signed Rebecca, and they were entranced by her hair, the the curly big hair. But she also had this fresh, wholesome look about her that was very appealing. She begged her parents to let her go to New York City with the elite model management company. 
and they saw how bad that she wanted this, so they were like, okay. So in, in 1984, Rebecca shared a Manhattan apartment with five other aspiring models, and she worked in some catalogs and commercials. Then she got interested in acting and took some acting lessons. Her first ever audition was for a science fiction movie called The Manhattan Project, and uh, she didn't get the role. She did, however, have short appearances on the soap operas One Life to Live and The Guiding Light. And during the time that she was in New York City, she went to something called the Professional Children's School. I find this a little bit weird. She was considered too short to be a successful model. She was five foot seven, which is, I would actually call that quite tall. I mean, I'm like average. I'm five five. I always thought that was average, but what do I know? So I guess somebody suggested to her that she should try going to Japan to model. So she went to Tokyo, but apparently she either wasn't successful there or she just didn't like Japan. But she returned to New York City to act. In 1986, she got a small role in Woody Allen's comedy called Radio Days. And it was such a small part that in the credits, she's only known as the communist's daughter. In March of 1987, she was featured on the cover of Seventeen magazine. And this was a magazine... Um, I guess like a beauty and fashion magazine. I don't, I don't know if it's still around or not, but it's, it's, as its name implies, it's aimed towards teenagers. So her magazine cover caught the attention of the producers for a new sitcom called My Sister Sam. And I got to talk a little bit about this, this show. It was produced by CBS and she auditioned for and won the role of Patty Russell, who was a teenager who moved in with her big sister, played by Pam Dauber, who, if you're uh, like my age, you might remember was the star of Mork and Mindy. Ironically, the teenager Patty in this show moved from Oregon see the irony there because that's where Rebecca's really from, to San Francisco to live with her big sister, Samantha, after the death of their parents. This turned out to be Rebecca's, what you call, big break in show business. This show was a hit. It premiered in October 1986 on CBS, and Patty, who was uh, Rebecca's character, was described as flaky and impulsive. And a summary of the show reads, quote, a photographer adjusts when her teenage sister moves in, end quote. And I guess then hilarity ensues. And I saw a an episode of the show on YouTube. And um, let's just say I didn't see any hilarity or actually even any humor. The show would be canceled in May of 1988 because it just wasn't doing that well in the ratings. So in the summer of 1986, there was what they call a promo for the show, meaning like an advertisement for the show, like, look at this show. It's called My Sister Sam, and it will be on CBS this fall. And somebody who was watching this in Tucson, Arizona, was very, very intrigued by this new show and by this beautiful 
big-haired girl named Rebecca Schaefer. But more on him later. Let's get back to Rebecca. Her next role was a small part called Xandra in a movie called Scenes from the Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, which I had never heard of. It's said to be a black comedy, and it looks really, really weird. The only thing that is significant about this movie is that Rebecca is shown briefly in bed with some dude. And I don't think it's it's an actual, like, nude scene or sex scene. From what I saw, which was a still picture, it's just her and this dude under the covers in bed. That's all. When she first moved to Hollywood, she lived with her co-star Pam Dauber and her director husband, Mark Harmon. And since she was the young person on the set of My Sister Sam, everybody was like her family. They... Kind of took care of her, took her under their wing, showed her stuff. They they were like a, I guess, a happy family. Eventually, she moved into her own apartment in West Hollywood. But she would say that she liked New York City better. It was only a few weeks that she'd been doing My Sister Sam when she started getting fan mail. Most of it was from girls. And she thought this was so cool. She couldn't believe that people were actually writing to her. And she wanted to answer all of these fan mails personally. So she mentioned something to a woman named Judy, who was the hairstylist on the set of My Sister Sam. Something to the effect that, like, Judy, I'm so excited. I'm getting fan mail and people writing me letters. Now, Judy later described Rebecca as, quote, very beautiful, very sweet, a bit naive, end quote. And she advised Rebecca not to respond to the letters because these people could be crazy. And she was a hairstylist who worked in TV. So she'd been in some form of show business for a long time. She knew the kind of things that went on. And Rebecca was so young and new and I guess naive. You know, a real sweet girl wanted to think the best of everybody, that everybody had good intentions. Rebecca was loving her new life in Los Angeles. Somebody set her up with a guy named Brad Silberling, who was a director. He was four years older than her, and he was like her first real boyfriend. She was just smitten with him. So after My Sister Sam ended, she had that, the short part, a scene, scenes from the class struggle in Beverly Hills, and the last three movies that she had parts in, and they were all small parts, were called Out of Time, The End of Innocence, and Voyage of Terror, The Achille Waro Affair. So on July 18th of 1989, Rebecca was 21. She was at home in her apartment, and she had an appointment for an audition in a new movie called The Godfather Part 3. She was going to audition for the part of Michael Corleone's daughter. So this was a pretty big role. And she was waiting for a courier service to deliver the manuscript to her so that she would have it in time to study it a little bit before her appointment. And I I still think it's really bizarre that they give her like a couple hours between here, here's your manuscript and then, okay, it's time for your audition. But anyway, she was home. She usually had a buzzer system in her apartment, you know, like an intercom system 
but unfortunately it was broken. So that morning at about 9.15, somebody rang her buzzer and she went to the door expecting the courier service with her manuscript. But it wasn't the courier. It was a young guy in a yellow shirt and he had a picture of her that she usually gave to people, to fans, and she'd signed it. And he shook her hand. He said um, something to the effect like, hi, hello, I'm, I don't know if he gave his name or not, Robert Bardo, but he said, I'm a fan, blah, blah, blah. And she said, I'm sorry, I have to go. I have, I'm getting ready for an interview. So Robert Bardo leaves. He actually went to a diner not far away. He ate some onion rings and he supposedly called his sister. This was 1989, so he would have had to use a payphone. Would have been an expensive call because he's now in LA and he's calling. I'm assuming his sister lived in Tucson. Anyway, he told his sister that she'd be hearing something about him and she didn't have a good feeling about whatever it was. And she said, why don't you come home? So at 10.15, Rebecca, who now has her script, is studying, and she is wearing a black robe. Looks like she just got out of the shower getting ready for her interview, her big audition. And the buzzer rings again. And she's probably like, oh my God, you know, I'm trying to study my manuscript and who keeps bothering me? So she answers the door and it's the dude in the yellow shirt again. And she said, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I'm trying to get ready for an interview and you're wasting my time. And according to him, he said, I forgot to give you something. And he reaches from behind his back and from the waistband of his pants, he pulls out a 357 Magnum revolver. And he shot her once in the chest at close range. And she screamed, why, why? And then she slumped over and started bleeding to death. The neighbors would later say, well, let me have them tell you because nobody tells a story best like an eyewitness, right? This is Rebecca's neighbor testifying in court. So within about a split second after Rebecca's footsteps passed your door, you heard a blast. Very loud? Very loud. It's like a cannon blast. And in this particular hallway, it was extremely loud. What happened next? Oh, I dropped my knees because the blast came through the door. It rattled the door and sort of knocked me to my knees. And I crawled to the other side of the door and ran to the bedroom and immediately got on the phone and dialed 911. What happened next? What happened is I was on the phone to, nine, to uh, the 911 people and I heard, uh, well, actually, as I was going into the bedroom, I heard the scream, one very loud, long scream. And as I was on the phone, there were more screams. And I mentioned to the people on the phone, can't you hear her screaming in the background? So other people hearing this huge boom started to come out of their apartments, houses, whatever, and they saw Rebecca laying there in a pool of blood, and they noticed that she had a very faint pulse. So she was rushed to Cedar sinai Hospital, which was only a few blocks away from where she lived. Unfortunately, she was pronounced dead 30 minutes after she got to the hospital. And according to the autopsy, she was shot at close range, 
in the chest and the impact literally blew apart half of her heart. So the police immediately went about trying to figure out who had done this. Numerous people had seen the man in the yellow shirt and they were able to give a description of him. And a few blocks from Rebecca's apartment building, the LAPD made a few very interesting finds. They found a yellow shirt, a gun holster, and a book. Not just any book, but Catch Her in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. Do you have any idea what significance that book has? Besides being a good book, I know a lot of people don't like it. It's real, It's a real divisive book. It's like either you love it or you hate it for some reason. I personally enjoyed it, but Mark David Chapman, the guy who killed John Lennon, I don't know if you remember this or you've heard about this, he was very similar. He was a stalker. He, uh, this happened in December of 1980. He had stalked John Lennon. He lived in uh, an apartment building in New York City, and he was said to have this thing about this book, The Catcher in the Rye. And he had a copy of the book with him when he shot and killed John Lennon. Well, Bardo also had a copy of this book. And he, we're going to learn a little more about him later on, but he actually kind of, I don't know if I want to use the word idolized, but identified with Chapman. So by having that book with him, that was a little bit of a, a tribute to Chapman. He was found the next day at, in his home city of Tucson, running around the uh, Interstate 10. And when I say running around, I don't mean like trying to cross the street or something. It, it was like he, people said it looked like he was trying to get hit by a car. And of course, the police were called about this situation. And the officer who um, responded to the situation, Officer Norton, is heard here testifying in court, just telling what he observed. And the woman's voice who you hear, prosecutor, that is none other than Marsha Clark, the Marsha Clark of O.J. Simpson fame. So here's a little snippet of Officer Norton and what he saw that day. In Tucson, on the day after Schaefer's killing, police officer John Norton received a report that a young man was acting strangely, walking up and down the exit ramp of the freeway. Officer Norton called police dispatchers and asked them to phone Bardo's parents. What, were you, what did the father say? The dispatcher told me that the father had advised that the defendant might be armed and that he had possibly killed an actress from California. And based on what you heard, sir, what did you do? I immediately went back to him. I had separated from him, so he couldn't hear my radio conversations. I immediately went back to him and Officer Oyn and frisked him looking for a weapon. While I was on the radio, he leaned his head on the DPS car and started to sob. And what did you do? I asked him what was wrong, and he said that I had better arrest him now. And I asked him why and what for, and he said, I shot somebody. I do have a lot of audio clips in this one. And do you remember back in school when, well, if you're as old as me, you would remember when it was movies, like the film rolls, and then later on it, it got to be a TV with a, like a VHS tape, and um, the teacher would wheel out the movie or TV or whatever, and everybody, everybody would be like, oh, movie, movie's cool. And um, 
we always thought that, and I still think that, and if there's any teachers out there, let me know. Because I, ha- I have a suspicion that they just didn't feel like teaching. And they're like, I know, I'll put on a movie and I can snooze or something. But anyway, I don't like to fill up the show with audio clips just for the sake of doing it or filling up, uh, you know, just putting shit in. I only put in things that I've listened to at least a couple times and I think are relevant. And the uh, clip of his trial that I saw was actually like an hour and a half long. It was on court TV. I don't even know if they have court TV anymore, but I picked out the the witnesses and testimony that I thought were important to demonstrate some sort of point tians and that are relevant. So every audio clip that you hear, I think is important to the case. And we're going to hear, I think I have like four more. But anyway, after he was arrested, uh, Robert Bardo never said that he didn't kill Rebecca. He admitted it the whole time. So now let's find out a little bit more about Mr. Bardo. Who is he? And what is his story? Robert John Bardo was born on January 2nd of 1970 at Edwards Air Force Base in California. His dad was a non-commissioned officer in the Air Force, so they moved very often. And his mother was Korean. And I have a clip of her, a small clip of her talking in court later, and she's very hard to understand, or at least in this little bit she is. His dad is is American. Robert was the youngest of seven. He doesn't really talk about his childhood, but he does claim that he was abused by one of his brothers. We don't know what kind of abuse. Like I said, he just won't talk about it. He was said to be bright, but a loner. Didn't have many friends. The family settled in Tucson in 1983, Tucson, Arizona. He was bullied, as a lot of kids are. One teacher described him disturbingly as, quote, a time bomb on the verge of exploding, end quote. He um, exhibited what they called threatening behavior to teachers and classmates. And Robert has always had, you'll, you'll see, this thing about writing letters. He wrote them, of course, to Rebecca. He wrote them to other celebrities. Before that, he wrote them to teachers And they were long, rambling letters with very dark, disturbing things in them. They were said to have hints at killing and um, death. And he would sign them names like Scarface and Dirty Harry. And what strikes me about those um, pseudonyms is not that they're, not only that they're ridiculous, but that they're TV or movie characters. And he was always fascinated by TV. And it seems to me that he um, kind of lived through TV and the people he saw on it. Like he maybe couldn't separate fantasy from reality. And I can't come out and say that he was delusional or schizophrenic because, well, first of all, everybody knows I'm not a psychologist. I can't diagnose anybody. But we're going to get into that deeper a little bit later on. In 1985... He made a suicide attempt. I don't know how, but he did. And he was committed to a mental hospital for a month. And in a something very reminiscent of the Brenda Spencer story, the people in the hospital 
told his parents that he should either stay in the hospital or continue to have treatment. And they refused. They're like, no, there's nothing wrong with him. And the parents seemed to be the only people who thought that there was nothing wrong with Robert. Everybody else thought that, yes, there is most certainly something wrong with him. The neighbors would observe him charging headfirst into a concrete wall in his yard. Um, I don't know if he caused himself kind of some kind of brain damage that way. And he played the guitar, which there's nothing wrong with his fun. He wanted to be a rock star when he grew up. Um, not real grounded in reality. And I have a another audio clip. This is his school counselor. His name is Donald Hickman. And he apparently noted how disturbed this kid kid was. And Marsha Clark is asking him about letters. You'll hear her refer to letters or his notes. And he's referring to letters that Robert wrote as a kid, teenager. And he's reading his notes to refresh his memory of things that Robert said to him and things that they talked about. So here is Mr. Hickman, the high school counselor. But right before, I'm sorry to like interrupted myself. Right before he testifies, Robert's mother, June, testifies. And you only hear her for like a minute, but I think what she says and how she says it is very significant. So that's why I'm going to play this for you. And well, I'll just play it and you can draw your own conclusions. So it's going to be his mom and then his counselor. My name is June Bado. Throughout her testimony, June Bardo wore dark sunglasses. Defense attorney Steve Galindo later told us he thought those glasses revealed a lot about what kind of mother she had been. Did Robert have any girlfriends, as far as you know? No. Did the state of Tucson or their representatives ever come to your home and take Robert out of your home? Yes. Do you remember when that was? 1985. And did they ever place Robert in a hospital? Yes. As further evidence of Bardo's troubled childhood, the defense calls Robert Bardo's counselor from junior high school. He would often be very depressed, not very talkative, very inward. And as I would uh, sit with him and talk, sometimes he would begin to uh, express anger. He would sometimes yell, curse, be very upset visibly, uh, get up, start to leave, return. Sometimes he would, uh, he would be so upset that he would just put his hands in his head and moan. And it became very apparent to me very early in those writings that he had um, a very low self-esteem and, and almost to the point of uh, not even believing that he made mistakes anymore, but that he just was a mistake. Okay, then directing your attention to the references where it indicates his writings, Robert Barber's writings, have in general revealed indication of serious emotional disturbance. Is that your information? Yes. Uh -huh. And that's the indication of 21084, Diary of a Madman right. by Scarface, Diary of a Devil by Scarface, Diary of Insanity by the Devil. Yes. That's your notation? Yes. Uh huh. And there's notation here about giving specific plans for killing and taking hostages. Yes. Involving a knife and a gun. Those are your notations? Yes. The notations below. The people at the school did a good job of stopping me from killing myself. They made a mistake because they saved the devil. 
Now the devil must kill. Is that your notation? Yes. Those are direct quotations from Robert. And then the statement, he states over and over that he is not kidding. Is that your yes. reference? Mm -hmm. And then in quotations, who cares about punishment? The only punishment is my home. I'm going to be the next Hitler. Right. That's a direct quote. Yes. Hail me, damn you. That's a direct quote. Yes. I rule, I am God, I will make my own society. Yes. Kill, vengeance. Yes. Violence, destruction, kill. These are all his quotations. Correct? Yes, that's correct. Are those quotes from letters he wrote? Yes, those are excerpts from letters. Then defense attorney Galindo asked the witness about a letter which he testifies was a clear cry for help. And it indicates at the top, I'm not able to relax here, semicolon several times, mm -hmm. I have to get away. Right. And then help with semicolons. Mm -hmm. There's a notation there, please do not ignore this. Right. Please don't, I need help now. Hickman testifies he stopped counseling Robert Bardo when he was still in junior high because June Bardo refused to cooperate. Wow. Just wow. It's literally like somebody holding up a sign saying, I'm psycho, I want to kill somebody, lock me up before I hurt somebody. And, well, he gave the date of the letter or the writing, 1984. He would have been 14. And... To have those kind of destructive thoughts about killing people that young, I mean, I don't have to tell you, is extremely disturbing. No mentally healthy people have those kind of thoughts. And I haven't seen these letters or these writings, but from what the counselor says, it seems that they were pretty detailed as far as what his plans were, that he fantasized about this types of violence, like holding people hostage and knives and guns and so forth. And then, uh, do you see why I wanted Yins to hear his mother? She was just, throughout the testimony, like, she was forced to be there. Like, she didn't want to, it, it was literally like pulling teeth to try to get her to answer any questions. You know, did he have any girlfriends? Nope. Did they, did he, somebody come in and take him to a hospital? Yes. Like a robot. And I thought, my God, if that was my mother, um, I think I'd be fucked up too. I have no idea what his dad was like, how any of the other kids turned out. But when he was 13, which would have been 1983, Robert developed his first, um, I guess you, you would call it an obsession with a celebrity. Now, I'm going to have to tell you who this person is because... I bet that nobody knows or nobody remembers. I actually do remember there was a girl named Samantha Smith, and I believe she was she was pretty young. She was maybe 10 or 12. They called her America's Youngest Ambassador, and she was like one of these people who's, you know, they, they say 15 minutes of fame. Like, you would hear about her on the news every day, and then, like, you just wouldn't hear about her anymore. Well, what she did is she wrote a letter to then, this was back when they had the Soviet Union, Yuri Andropov. He was like the, I don't know what they call it, minister or whatever, head of the Soviet Union. And she said, quote, God made the world for us to live together in peace, end quote. That was like her big thing. She was basically like, um, because this was during the Cold War. This was when tensions between the United States and Soviet Union were like, um, now, Ian's younger people won't have any idea what I'm talking about, but during the 80s, the Cold War was kind of a big deal. So 
that this little girl wrote to Yuri Andropov, and he invited her and her family to come over and visit to the Soviet Union. This actually was kind of a big deal in the news then. So Bardo became infatuated with her. She lived in Maine, which was kind of far from Tucson, Arizona. He wrote her letters. Um, she sent him back a postcard. Somehow he found her phone number. I'm guessing he, back in those days, we had phone books. Could have possibly gone to the library and found a phone book for her, that area. But her last name was Smith. And you got to think there's a lot of Smiths around. And knowing him, he called everyone until he found the right one. But anyway, he called this phone number and he got Smith on the phone and he rambled to her. I don't know what he said, but he kept calling. And the family realized, okay, this dude is nuts. We don't want him talking to Samantha. So they would always answer the phone and say that, no, she's not here or you can't talk to her or whatever. This is important. He felt that he had a connection with Samantha and that they had some kind of relationship. So in 1984, he stole $240 from his mother and he traveled the 2,800 miles to Maine. I'm assuming this was, this was a bus, but I really don't know. Just in time, his family figured out where he was and what he was up to. They contacted the police in whatever city in Maine Samantha lived in, and the police caught him two blocks from her house. So it's a good thing. Nobody knows what he had planned or what he would have done, but they shipped his ass back home to Arizona. At some point, he was supposedly diagnosed with depression and bipolar disorder, only back then they called it manic depression. And he threatened suicide at one point. He was taken out of his home for a while and put in a foster home for some period of time. And because his family is so secretive and closed-mouthed around, um, you know, their family, the kids, all of them, and the events, we don't know a whole lot about, about this. So we know that he's fascinated by TV. During the summer of 1986, he's watching Magnum P.I. It was Tom Selleck starring in a detective show. And he saw a preview or a promo or whatever you want to call it for a new sitcom called My Sister Sam. And of course, it showed Rebecca. And this was the first he'd seen her or first he'd heard of her. And he's immediately stricken with her. Immediate infatuation. And he thought that she was talking directly to him. Again, it's this this thinking that there's a relationship there when really all she is at this point is a face on a TV screen. He dropped out of high school in ninth grade, and he got a, a job as a janitor at Jack in the Box. That's a fast food restaurant. I don't even know what they have there. Never been there. It doesn't matter. So when, when this show, My Sister Sam, came on, he would, of course, watch it and... Of course, he would record it on the, the VHS tape, you know, with the VCR, because this was the 80s. So he would keep watching them again and again. Rebecca hosted a Thanksgiving Day parade. You know how they had those? They have the parade, and then they have the couple of hosts that talk about the parade. Well, she was a host. Must have been like 86, 87. So he recorded that. He would watch that obsessively. His bedroom was filled with posters and pictures of Rebecca. It was like a shrine to her. 
She sent him a couple photos, a couple were autographed. One of them, them said, with love from Rebecca and a peace sign. To somebody that's unbalanced, like him, he took that as she literally loved him. And in one uh, correspondence that Rebecca wrote to him, she said that his was the most beautiful letter she'd ever received. And he, again, this keeps going on in his Obsession is being fed. He feels like he is actually in a relationship with her, like he knows her now. They're writing letters. She uses the word love on her picture, which she probably did to everybody. Okay, I want to take a break for a minute to tell you about a book that I just read, and I would highly recommend it to anybody who was interested in crime and serial killers, and I think that would be like all of us by definition. It's called Crazy Is As Crazy Does, and it's a novella, you know, a short novel by John H. Mudgett. Get it? It's available in paperback or on Kindle Unlimited, if you have that. I love Kindle Unlimited on Amazon. You know, you can download it in seconds. And I always read the uh, dedication in a book. And I have to read this dedication that he wrote to you. It says, this book is written and dedicated to fans of dysfunction and abnormal behaviors. And I'm like, okay, you got me because that's all me, right? And I'm sure it's everybody else too. So the book, without any spoil spoiler alerts, I'll just tell you a little bit about it. It's told from the point of view of a fictional serial killer. And it starts at some point, like in current time, and he works his way back through his life and he narrates things that he does. And he puts in the book encounters with people who we know are real life serial killers. And I'm not going to tell you who they are. I'll let you discover it on your own. But it's fun to discover, oh, he's talking about this killer or this famous killer. And you can tell that the author knows about these killers. He knows the things they've done because he has his fictional killer have conversations with them. And he does a very good job of imagining what they would actually say, which is what makes it really intriguing. And of course, there's a really cool twist at the end. I'm not going to spoil it by telling you what happens. But anyway, read this book. It's worth it. I really think that Ian's will enjoy it. And I will leave the... Uh, title of it and where you can get it in my show notes. Now, in 1987, Robert made two trips to the Warner Brothers studio in Burbank to see Rebecca. I don't know what he thought he was going to accomplish here. The first time, he took her a big-ass teddy bear and a bunch of roses. Of course, the security wouldn't let him in. The second time he came, he had a knife with him. Again, don't know what he was intending to do with it. But fortunately for Rebecca, security was on the ball and not just anybody can walk off the street and go try to see their favorite stars at uh, working at the studio. So at his trial, we have a guy named Jack Egger, who was the security guard on both of those occasions. So here is Mr. Egger. On uh, June the 2nd, 1987, our guard uh, at the ranch gate called me and said, there's a fellow here that's been here lots of times who has a large bouquet 
and about a five-foot teddy bear, and he's left it with us, and he wants us to deliver it to Rebecca Schaefer. What should we do? And knowing that this individual had called numerous times and been referred to us by the production company of my sister Sam because he called them so many times, I said, pack up the teddy bear, the flowers, and Bardo and him, and bring him to my office. I want to talk to him. So the name he gave at that time was Robert Bardo? Yes. Do you please tell me, in context of all the people that you've seen in the scope and course of your duties at the Burbank Studios, and I'm talking about the people that you come in contact with that are interested in seeking out celebrities on the lot, how does Mr. Bardo compare? He was one of the most lucid and uh, uh, intelligent types of people that I've dealt with. Did he seem calm to you? Yes. When he indicated to you that he had no previous psychiatric background, did you have any cause in what you saw in his behavior with you to doubt that? None whatsoever. I proceeded to uh, tell him that the best thing for him to do would be to uh, stay away from the studio and not try to get near Rebecca Schaefer. Apparently, Robert did take his advice somewhat when he got back home to Arizona, would be when he started his new obsessions with Madonna, Tiffany, and Debbie Gibson. I don't think I should have to explain who Madonna is, but she was like the biggest star in the world, and she probably had millions and millions of fans. Debbie Gibson is somebody... There, these people are all my age. Uh, Bardo's my age. Rebecca is a couple years older than me. Debbie Gibson and Tiffany, I think, are like right around my age. But in the 80s, they were teenagers. They were singers and they were celebrities. In 1988, he went to New York City. I don't know where he gets all this money to go chasing celebrities all over the country. Um, for the one trip, I know he stole it. I don't know if he's saving his jack-in-the-box money or what, but he couldn't get anywhere near Debbie Gibson, fortunately, because her security was too tight. But one of the things that he did want to see when he was in New York City, and he did manage to see this, was the spot where John Lennon was killed. I mentioned him earlier, and um, he was a famous, another musician. He was stalked by Mark David Chapman, who is still in, I believe, a psychiatric facility. And I think he was found to be psychotic or like truly mentally ill. And when he shot John Lennon, and he had the copy of A Catcher in the Rye with him. And Bardo wrote to Chapman in the hospital. And I don't really know what they talked about. I don't know if he asked him for tips on stalking celebrities, on, on killing celebrities, I don't know. So he can't get to Debbie Gibson. I don't know what about Tiffany, Madonna, I'm sure. He probably wouldn't even be able to look at her. She's just too big and famous. So out of all these people, Rebecca is the most approachable, and she's written to him. So in about 1989, he's about 19 years old, he goes back to his Rebecca obsession. What sets him off is, remember I mentioned that movie that she was in, Scenes from a Class Struggle in Beverly Hills, and I have a feeling, I've never heard of it, but I'm not like real into movies, but something just tells me that that's one of those movies that literally everybody in the world, except for those people who were in it, have forgotten it, 
except for Robert Barda. He saw this movie, was, which was released in June of 1989. And I mentioned that there's a scene with Rebecca in bed with some dude. Well, he blows his lid. He becomes absolutely furious that she's there. You know, pure, innocent, beautiful Rebecca is rolling around in the sheets with some grimy Hollywood slob. And remember, he can't separate fantasy from reality. And he made this quote to somebody after he was arrested. He said, quote, all those rageful feelings, how dare she? She's mine. She's supposed to stay innocent for me, end quote. So he wrote to her, this occasion demands another letter to her, and he said that he was upset by this scene in this movie, and he accused her of being, quote, an other Hollywood whore, end quote. Now, she was, in his mind, his, they had a relationship. She sent him a picture that said, love of Rebecca, and now she's gone and uh, done this horrible deed, and he must take it upon himself now to punish her by taking her life. He actually used these words. So he told his sister at some point that he was going to Los Angeles to, quote, save Rebecca. Now, he read in a 1982 issue of People magazine, and I got to bring up another obscure celebrity. I'm sorry about this, but go to hear this person's story. Teresa Saldana is her name. I think she was an actor, but she was also stalked and attacked by a stalker with a knife. And luckily for her, a neighbor saw what was going on, jumped in the fray, and Teresa survived with some scars, but she did survive. Her stalker was a guy named Arthur Jackson, and he paid a private investigator to find out her address. So this here asshole, Robert, gets the same idea in his brain, goes to a PI in Tucson, and paid $250. P.I. goes to the California DMV and just like that got her address from her driver's license. And the thing that's so maddening is that at that time that was perfectly legal. Anybody could walk into any DMV, pay like, well at this place it was $1.50. I don't know what it was other states, but say, oh, you know, here's my money, give me such and such as address. You know, if the person had a driver's license, well, here you, here you go. Fortunately, that would later change. But he has her address. She lives in an apartment in West Hollywood. Now he needs a gun. He goes into a gun store. He wants to buy a Ruger GP100 357 Magnum revolver, which, uh, if you don't know anything about guns, just take my word for it, is a big-ass gun. But he couldn't buy it for two reasons. At the time in Arizona, you had to be 21 to buy a gun. He was only 19. And he had a mental health history. Remember, he had been hospitalized. And the person who worked in the gun store actually put up a photo of him on the, I guess, employee wall or whatever and said, don't sell a gun to this person. I don't know if he acted weird or disturbing or I don't know. But he's got six brothers and sisters. He just gets one of them to go buy the gun for him. His brother Edward went and got him the gun. N never stopping to think, why do you want the gun? Um, maybe this isn't such a good idea. What are you going to do with this? Oh, I think he did ask him. I think he did ask, what is this for? 
and uh, Robert said target practice. So now he's got his gun, he's got his uh, Rebecca's address, and he's got his the picture of her that she signed with love, and he has his copy of Catcher in the Rye, and he's all set in his yellow shirt. So he goes off to Rebecca's apartment building, or the neighbor neighborhood of West Hollywood, and witnesses later said that he was kind of walking around strolling about like you know looking around like maybe he was lost or something and he supposedly asked a few people if Rebecca lived around here or showed her picture and said does she live around here and unfortunately these these people said yeah she does so I think we know how this story ends he goes and rings her buzzer the first time and the exchange was supposedly polite then he goes, eats some onion rings, and when he comes back, he's mad. And th this part doesn't really make sense to me because he obviously went to the trouble to get the gun. So he's going there with a gun, obviously intending to use it because why else does he have it? But he told a therapist or somebody who interviewed him later after his arrest that the second time when he came back, Rebecca acted irritated, which of course she is. She's trying to get ready for an audition and this wacko keeps knocking at her door. And she said something to the effect like, you came to my door again. And he said, quote, it was like I was bothering her. I thought that was a very callous thing to say to a fan, end quote. And then he added that he was thinking, quote, I should blow my head off and fall on her, end quote. Meaning after he'd killed her, kill himself and, well, do us all a favor. But that's his version of events. And then, of course, he ran and dropped his shirt, holster, and catcher in the rival. And then, of course, the next day he was arrested in Tucson. And by this time, his family had figured out that he was gone and that his the gun was missing. And his sister, the one that he called from the diner or af after he had his onion rings and said something like, um, you know, watch, watch for me. I'm going to do something. His family put two and two together and they were like, oh shit, you know, Robert's gone, the gun's gone. And now they're saying on the news that this, uh, this Rebecca Schaefer was shot and killed. And they called the police and let them know that. And I think in the, in the trial that the one officer who went to, um, arrest Robert when he was playing in traffic, I think he mentioned that the, the dad had called 911. So he went to trial, and this will, this will be a bench trial. The judge's name was Dino Fulgoni. Trial was in September of 1991, and he had an agreement that he would waive a jury trial if the prosecution agreed not to go for the death penalty. So that's what happened. Now, before I get into his trial, there were several good things that came as a result of Rebecca's murder. Soon after her death, her My Sister Sam co-stars Pam Dauber, Joel Brooks, Daniel Naughton, and Jenny O'Hara filmed a public service announcement for the Center to Prevent Handgun Violence in her honor. In 1994, the Federal Driver's Privacy Protection Act was 
enacted, and this limits the disclosure of personal information obtained from the DMV. The LAPD created the first threat management team. I'm assuming that other police forces have other ones, but they were the first. And this makes sense because Los Angeles, you know, Hollywood celebrities, most of them seem to be in that area. And what they do is they analyze and track threats that people receive, like harassment and stalking. By 1993, all of the United States and Canada had anti-stalking laws. And California, again, was, was the first in 1990. They had the first anti-stalking law, making it a felony to cause another person or their family to be in reasonable, reasonable fear for their safety. And this carries a state prison sentence. There's a video of Robert and it's very telling, but the audio on it is so bad that I'm going to have to read it to you, what he says, and describe how he, it's more how he says it that's so telling, and his, like, gestures that accompany it rather than the words. So that's why I want to take the time to read it to you and explain it to you. It's filmed shortly after his arrest. I think he's wearing a jail you know, the typical jail fashion. And I'm not sure who he's talking to. I'm assuming it's a therapist of some sort. But the person asks Robert to describe what happened during the shooting. And he says, quote, She had this kid voice. Sounded like a little brat or something. Said I was wasting her time. Wasting her time. No matter what, I thought that was a very callous thing to say to a fan, you know. I grabbed the door, gun still in the bag. I grabbed it by the trigger. I come around and kapow. She's like screaming, ah, screaming, why, ah, and it's like, oh God, end quote. And then he adds, I could probably tell you what I did after I killed her, how I got sick and all, but I don't feel like it. A year after he was arrested, he said this to a, uh, a mental health professional, quote, I was a fan of hers and I may have carried it too far, but a lot of things have appeared in the press to make me out to be a monster. If I had one wish where if it was ever to come true, it would be for Rebecca Schaefer to be alive today, end quote. And the thing that's so telling about the video, he's kind of demonstrating shooting her and it, it's it's very disturbing you know how little kids play well i don't even know if they still do i don't think i've ever actually seen this happen except maybe on tv they play like cops and robbers or something where they pretend that they're shooting you and they point their like i'm doing this like you can see me they point their hand and finger to look like a gun and they're like pow pow you know i'm shooting you well, this is what he was doing. He was acting it out. He, he looked ridiculous, like a, a kid. And he's, like, really into the motions, very demonstrative. He's going, kapow, kapow. Like, he's literally playing cops and robbers. And then he's imitating Rebecca screaming, which is, is just horrifying. And, and, you know, he's going, ah, ah. And um, I'm like, wow, just wow. It all comes off as though he's bragging or he's proud of himself for what he is, has just done. 
In 2007, he was in the Mule Creek State Prison in California. And this is what they called a um, maximum security prison for people with, quote, sensitive needs, like high-profile criminals, gang members, serial killers, sex offenders. See, when you're in prison, you have like a hierarchy, like people who are seen as some kind of a celebrity, which I, I think he is. I think that's he's got that celebrity status because he killed a celebrity, which is so ironic. And he's so deserving of what's going to happen in this. But um, if you're a, a serial killer or um, sex offender, pedophile, there's it's almost like there's a price on your head. Like everybody, all the other prisoners want to hurt you. And if they kill you, it's like they've won some kind of game. Like the guy who killed, the inmate who killed Jeffrey Dahmer and another prisoner at the same time. The other prisoner he killed, I don't remember his name, but he was also a murderer. It's like he instantly gave himself street cred in prison. Like he really made himself cool by doing this. Well, anyway, Robert was stabbed 11 times by a uh, 49-year-old man who was serving time for second-degree murder. He's now in I don't know if it's pronounced a venal or avenal state prison, and it's also a maximum security. And I find it really hilarious that he's seen as a celebrity inmate because of what he did. And as a result, he got stabbed. you got to love the irony there. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the psychology of stalkers, or stalkers who kill, or both. There's not a whole lot of research on celebrity stalkers, but what there is finds that the most dangerous type is the male who targets a female celebrity. And this is not about him, Barta. This is just like in general. He believes that he loves her or has some kind of relationship with her. He's either unemployed or underemployed. He is currently not in a romantic relationship or has no history of romantic relationships. He's fairly intelligent or uh, more more intelligent than, than the average criminal. The obsession with said celebrity or target is long in duration. He will have a criminal history, particularly likely to involve weapons. He over-identifies with the celebrity if the celebrity or target of his affection responds with... Um, something inappropriate that he deems as inappropriate, he will become angry and feel betrayed. And the violence is seen as something called egodystonic. What that means is it's the opposite and it, it's in conflict with the needs and goals of the person's ego. It's in conflict with the self-image. After either the attack on the person or the killing of the person, the attitude towards the victim usually tends to change and now is sympathetic. Like any anger or resentment they have had towards the victim is now gone, usually replaced with sympathy. And Robert Bardo fits um, all of those categories. It's a male, male who targets a female celebrity. He believed he loved her. He was underemployed at the time that 
he killed her. He was unemployed. We don't know of any girlfriend that he's ever had in real life. Um, he was said to be fairly intelligent. He had a long history of obsession with celebrities in general, but especially Rebecca. He did have a criminal history. Before the murder, he was arrested three times, but he was never convicted on any of these. I know that one was domestic violence. The other one was disorderly conduct. And they're both so vague that I have no idea what those were about. And the big thing with him is probably uh, the inappropriate response of anger after he thought that she betrayed him. The first was seeing her in that movie, the quote, sex scene that she had in the movie. He thought, oh, you know, she's just another whore now and she deserves to be punished. And then on the day that he killed her, remember he went there the first time and he thought she, to him, I'm sure she really wasn't, that she was rude or callous. It, it was his word. So then he went back and he shot her. And that was supposedly in a punishment for being standoffish or what he considered rude. So at what point is admiration considered obsession? Remember at the beginning of the episode, I asked everybody who their celebrity crushes. If you go to the person's home, workplace, a movie set, um, that would be obsession. If I would show up at whatever studio Jeremy Renner works at, Marvel, or I don't know if Marvel has a studio with flowers or something, so that I'd like to see Jeremy Renner, they would probably tell me, get lost. If you send them dirty pictures, nude pictures, dirty letters, that's inappropriate. According to Psychology Today, there are seven types of celebrity stalkers, and I'll read them to you, and then we'll try to figure out which type Robert was. It should be real obvious to you, but, you know, I'll give you a hint if you can't figure it out. A celebrity stalker is defined as somebody with pervasive, invasive, vexatious, and intimidating behaviors. And these behaviors can take many forms. One type is rejected. They knew and had a previous relationship with the celebrity. The next type is resentful. This is the most common. They expect some kind of response from the celebrity, like um, to be asked out on a date or some kind of attention, and they don't get it. The other type is an intimacy seeker. They're usually delusional. They may be fixated. They believe that they're entitled to have some kind of relationship with the celebrity. There's something called the help seeker. They're not yet resentful, but they're looking towards this person for help of some sort. There's the incompetent suitor. They attempt to woo the celebrity with increasingly disturbing courtship. Like, you know, it might start out something innocent like letters, and then it goes to more uh, bigger things like expensive gifts or, you know, dirty pictures. There's predatory, which is seen as the least common, and... In this one, the offender conducts surveillance on the target, on the celebrity, and plans to sexually assault them. There's the attention seeker. They're seeking personal fame via a relationship with the celebrity. They're kind of like a hanger-on or a... I think I've heard them referred to as star fuckers, like somebody who is actually seeking attention for themselves. 
And finally, there's the chaotic type. This person is psychotic and they can't describe their motivations. They're too mentally disordered to tell you why they're doing what they're doing. So which of these do you think Robert is? He's the second type that I mentioned, the resentful, which is the most common. He expected some kind of response from Rebecca and he got mad when he didn't get it. He wanted her attention. It's, it was just that simple. And when she behaved in what he saw as denigrating to him, he felt the need to punish her. Experts estimate that 12 to 16% of female and 4 to 7% of celebrity males will be stalked. And experts advise, if there's any celebrities listening, any public figures, like you're in politics or you're somehow well-known out in the public, that you shouldn't allow selfies with fans. I guess, I don't know if that lets them too close to you. I don't know. And that you shouldn't be too friendly or approachable. And I think today most big stars have bodyguards and all kinds of security and cameras and security systems and all kinds of stuff like that because they can afford it. So I, I think, um, and it, from what I've seen and what I've read, these bodyguards are very well trained in how to spot suspicious people, um, how to tell the deranged from the merely, I guess, avid fan. So they do know something about psychology and how to sniff out the dangerous people. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about his trial, which we know happened in September of 1991. And yeah, I know this is a long episode. I told myself that I wasn't going to put out multi-part ones on one day anymore because it's too hard on me. So I, I guess my brain somehow decided that I'm going to make massive three-hour episodes. I don't know. But um, <laughs> I guess if you were bored, you would have already turned me off. So if you're still here, you must be interested. Robert's defense at his trial was called diminished actuality. And it's not really an outright insanity defense. It might only be in California. I'm not sure. I've never heard of it in Pennsylvania. But what it says is basically that the defendant is not mentally ill enough for the NGRI plea or the not guilty by reason of insanity, but that they don't have the capacity to plan and commit a crime due to their mental state. Okay, it's a thin line, but there is really a difference. And this is what Robert's attorney, attorney Galindo, was using. The defense testimony was, I would call it unspectacular for the exception that he called as an expert witness Park Dietz. If you don't know who Park Dietz was, I have to tell you because he's very, very important. He's an expert forensic psychiatrist and one of the most famous and one of the best forensic psychiatrists. He's not just any old dude up on the stand talking. He's noteworthy. He went to Johns Hopkins University and Harvard, so he's brilliant, and he's been an expert witness in many, many very high-profile trials, like um, John Hinckley, who attempted to assassinate President Reagan back in the 80s, and Jeffrey Dahmer. So 
he knows his shit. Other than if it, if it was anybody else, I wouldn't even bother mentioning them. But he testified that Wardo was disturbed, was mentally ill, and that he had this diminished actuality. I'm not going to play it for it because it's long, but he has a, a humorous exchange with, with Marsha Clark during the trial. And they, like, laugh. You know, they, they trade some barbs, but they laugh about it like they're friendly. He seems like a nice guy. I would love to talk to him. He seems absolutely fascinating. But during court, and if you want, you can actually, on court TV, you can see the whole trial. I don't know if it's an act or if he really was, but Robert acts like a lunatic. He kind of rocks back and forth. He puts his hands over his ears. I don't know if it's like an attempt to drown out, you know, like I don't want to hear this. But unquestionably, the most bizarre thing is he has an obsession with a song. And it's a song I've never heard of. That's probably because I'm not a U2 fan. The song is obviously by U2. It's called Exit. And apparently he was obsessed with this song. And he would later say that, I guess, on his trip from Tucson to Hollywood to kill Rebecca, he was listening to it on a cassette tape. And he would say that he was possessed by the song. And really, Robert, possessed you're, by the song, you're going to do the uh, old devil made me do a defense. That's literally like the oldest and most boring defense in the book. Well, one of the lines of the song is, and I, I do have to read this to you because it's, it's very uh, chilling is the only word I can think of. It goes, his hand in his pocket, his finger on the steel, the pistol weighed heavy. His heart he could feel was beating, 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 oh my love. And they play the song in the courtroom. And his reaction is uh, just worth watching. Just for this alone is worth watching. The only word that comes to my mind, and this, this might be like a an 80s term, but I, I can't think of any other word, is jamming. Do you know what that means? Like, uh, I can't demonstrate. He was lip syncing. He was shaking his feet. He was, you know how you, okay, playing the air guitar. This is in court. He's doing this in court during his trial. He's doing all this, you know, shaking his head and uh, mouthing the, the lyrics, playing the air guitar and wiggling and People are probably like, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? I mean, if he set out to play crazy, he did a damn good job. But in the end, this is what the judge found. Remember, this is a bench trial. And this is Judge Fulgoni. So here's what he had to say. If you look at this case from the standpoint of the physical facts and the physical facts alone, I think it is very clear that this is a killing by lying in wait. We have a young lady who answers the door to her apartment house. The calm doesn't work. She goes to the apartment door and she is shot. The circumstances, as testified by Ms. Marta, are that she heard a buzzer and that she heard 
the victim leave her apartment, walk past her apartment, that she paralleled her walk, that she walked to the front door of the apartment house, that very, very shortly after she heard the last step, she said a second or a split second, clearly not enough time for any conversation to occur. It implies that somebody rang the bell for the purpose of luring her out of her apartment so that she could be killed. The defendant had ambivalent feelings toward Rebecca Schaefer, and that is understandable. What I fail to see is pathological ambivalence in this case. I'm not saying that the defendant is a normal person. The defendant is not a normal person. The defendant has some kind of a mental disorder or problem. The defendant may even have schizophrenia of some sort. And I'll even give him the benefit of the doubt and consider him to have some kind or degree of schizophrenia. But the doctor himself admitted that schizophrenics can premeditate, that they can lie in wait, and they can intend to kill. As a matter of fact, Mr. Galindo conceded that the defendant had the capacity to intend to kill, the capacity to premeditate, and the capacity to lie in wait. The point is, what happened at that doorway? Did he, in fact, lie in wait? Did he premeditate? Did he intend to kill? Obviously, he intended to kill. There is no question in anyone's mind that he intended to kill. But all that gives rise to a naked intent to kill is second-degree murder. What about first-degree murder? Did he premeditate and deliberate? Obviously, he premeditated and deliberated, perhaps even excessively, before he came to California. He had the full-fledged intent to kill, his letter to Arlene, wherein he speaks of a mission that you're going to hear about, you're going to hate me for it, etc. He considered carefully the reasons for and against the killing, and then, having considered and decided to kill. Is there anything distorted, so distorted about his motivation that would compel me to say that he cannot premeditate and deliberate? And the answer is no. He has no command hallucinations. I watched that tape yesterday of Dr. Dietz interrogating him. And in that tape, his responses were relevant. He understood every single question. If he had hallucinations, he had them when he was 15 years old. If he had them when he was 15 years old, they do not affect his conduct today. There is no delusionary content to his thought. All I see is a hope that Rebecca Schaefer will like him. Point is, it's my job to make a determination as to how serious this defendant's mental condition is, how it affects him, and more importantly, how it affected him on the day of the killing. You have a man who's been planning and premeditating to kill someone. He goes to her door and the encounter is pleasant. What he wants now, after thinking about it for a half hour to an hour, is another pleasant encounter. He goes there and the encounter is not pleasant. He has already formed an intent to kill as a result of premeditation and deliberation. It's been thought out. He has decided to do it. He's bought a gun for the purpose. He's bought a, 
bus ticket. He's taken the bus. He's come over there. He's loaded the gun prior to the first visit. He's ready to kill. He has considered the reasons for and against it. And having done so, he has decided to kill. He goes up there and finds that this momentary niceness that he perceived is an illusion. She really is arrogant. And then kills. I think the time has come to make a decision. I find the defendant guilty of first-degree murder, uh, both as premeditated and lying in wait. And I find the special circumstance of lying in wait and that he killed intentionally while lying in wait to be true. So Robert was sentenced to life in prison without parole, and that's where he is. Now there's one more thing that I want to tell you. While he's been in prison, Robert has developed a hobby, which is fine. Everybody needs a hobby, even prisoners, because they need something to do to uh, keep them quiet and not bother other people that live and work in the prison. But Robert's hobby is kind of disturbing. He draws sketches of people, and that in itself is not disturbing. But what is, is the fact that he sells them. Yeah, you heard me right. He sells them. And I really thought that there was a law called the Son of Sam law that says that criminals, people in prison, or even not in prison, cannot profit from their crimes. So it is totally beyond me how he is able to pull this off. I'm assuming that there's a third party involved, that he draws these sketches, he gives them to said third party or third parties, and they distribute them. I don't know, but I found some of his work on Serial Killers Inc. That's INK.net. They call themselves the premier true crime collectibles website, and it says that they sell. This place, this page is worth looking at. Just, um, it's kind of like a train wreck. It's like, what? Like, are you serious? They have artwork, cards, case files, crime scene photos, and then they have them listed by the killer. And that is a whole other subject, and I do plan to do a whole episode on that someday. It's called Murderabilia, the collectibles of such things. There's a whole, like, culture behind that. But this turd actually draws celebrities and sells them on at least one website. I don't know if there's any others or not, but one of the ones he drew is Rebecca, and it's just so disturbing on so many levels. It's it's like, oh god, I can't even, it makes me sick. And I think I told you in one of the episodes that I painted, and I can draw. I'm, I mean, well, I guess I would consider myself an artist. And speaking as an artist, just like objectively, they're not good. They're average. I don't even know if they're average. They're just uh, mediocre is all. And I, even if he didn't draw them, there's no way that I would pay for something that's so mediocre. And besides Rebecca, he's drawn uh, the kiss, you know, the band, the the makeup, um, some kind of evil clown. It's actually called evil clown. 
And it looks like it might supposed to be from the movie Killer Clowns from Outer Space, which is a really cool movie. It's really fun. I think you call it like a cult movie or a B movie. But like I said, none of them are any good. And uh, I just wanted to mention that. So what have we learned today? Don't stalk people. If you think somebody's stalking you, take it seriously. This is what I used to tell people when I was a probation officer and not my defendants, but somebody like a relative or ex-girlfriend or something of a defendant would call and say, so-and-so's harassing me. And I would say, what you need to do is document everything. Keep like a journal. Say, on this date, on this time, he called me and he said, blah, blah, blah. If he sends you any kind of correspondence, keep it. So keep everything in a log and accounted for in case you ever have to go file charges at a magistrate. You have everything with you and it'll be a lot easier. That's with any kind of harassment, anybody bothering you. That's the advice that I give everybody. Write everything down. You can show the police. And nowadays with email and text messages, it's real easy to keep that shit and to show the uh, law enforcement when you go to make a complaint of somebody bothering you. So definitely do that. This episode is dedicated to Rebecca Schaefer. Next week, we're going to England. So have your passports ready. If you're already in England, you don't need a passport. But I will see you next week. Got an interesting one. Class dismissed.